Welcome. You are listening to the Upper Room Podcast. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit URFellowship.com. Hi, and good morning. Great to see you all. If you're new, welcome to you as well. My name is Chris. Um, Today, well, there's been something that I've wanted to talk about for a while. And uh, even though this topic is kind of adjacent to issues of sexuality, it has a lot to do with what we've been talking about in this series. So I think that this is the right time for it. And what I want to cover today is kind of where we are, where we, where we fit as modern followers of Christ in history and in culture. Uh, and there's going to be a lot here, okay? I'm going to cover a lot of ground. So kind of put your thinking caps on and stay with me, all right? So we're going to, so we are, we're coming out of this COVID crisis, I think, maybe, but um, that's really neither here nor there. But historically, what has happened after a national crisis is there, there's an impulse for a nation to turn to God, right? I think the last time we saw this was a few weeks after 9-11. For a while, churches were packed. But that that kind of sustained for a while, but but didn't really last too long. But what we're seeing is that there's a, a difference between historical crises, whether that's World War II, the Great Depression, the Spanish flu, and what we're seeing presently. What we're seeing is that there's been really no return at a national level to prayer or repentance of any kind. What we've seen instead is kind of a rise in pseudo-spirituality, what Tara Isabella Burton calls the unbundling of religion, which is a play on what people have done since streaming services came along and kind of dropped, you know, people kind of dropped their cable packages, right? The idea is now we get to pick and choose, like we can watch a little bit of HBO, a little bit of ESPN, a little bit of Netflix, or whatever. In the same way, now we get to do that with religion and spirituality. A little Buddhism here, uh, some mindfulness, I'm into that, a little faux Christian community. The problem with that is it just, it makes spirituality just something we consume. And all that to say, there's an ache deep inside of all of us, the ache for God and for his, his love for us living a life of meaning and purpose and having a community to belong to. That ache is deep inside of all of us, but it is becoming less and less common for people in our nation to attempt to quench that ache in the way of Jesus. And this is just a, a part of a shift that's been in the process, in process for the last few decades. And my sense is that it's accelerated even more since the start of COVID. And the shift is from a, a Christian culture to a post-Christian culture. So that's happening. Now, if that's new information to you, give me kind of a few minutes to lay that out. Um, Philip Reef, who was a sociologist of religion, uh, he divided Western history into what he called three cultural worlds, or three basic stages. The first was a pre-Christian culture. So this is Celtic Ireland before St. Patrick or the Vikings, before the Gospel, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a culture of gods and goddesses. It's tribal. It's all about spiritual energy, right? But much of that spiritual energy is dark. But then as, as followers of Jesus kind of make their way west from Israel and spread the gospel, 
eventually make their way into what we now know as, as Europe and then across the, the pond. Um, the, the West kind of moves into a second phase, which is Christianized culture. So this would be Victorian England at the end of the, end of the century or America after the Second Great Awakening. And the upside to having a Christianized culture is that culture in general affects you, right? So whether it's good or bad, culture is a mechanism for formation. We become like our culture. This is why there are stereotypes for every culture, for every city, for every nation. We become like our culture. And Christianized culture formed people in the general direction of Jesus. The downside is that the line between the church and what the New Testament writers call the world can get very fuzzy. For that reason, in others, the West then begins an accelerated move into kind of a third phase called post-Christian culture. Starting with the Enlightenment, but really since the 1960s in our nation, there's been a rapid spread. And post-Christian culture is a reaction against Christianity in in an attempt to move beyond it. Okay, so particularly around human rights. You see that a lot which really kind of makes no sense. Because there's no coherent logical argument that gets you from Darwinian materialism to human rights. You don't get from survival of the fittest to we should all inconvenience ourselves to care for people. That's logically inconsistent. Yuval Harari, the leading atheist of our time, even says this. You can only get there from the Christian doctrine. But we are having like this, you see this kind of like angsty kind of reactionary, hostile, rebellious teenager moment against the way of Jesus, aren't we? It's like the stereotypical adolescent kind of texting about how lame their parents are while they still live in their house and eat their food. (laughs) Mark Sayers said, post-Christianity attempts to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting upon its fruit. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom, kingdom whilst defending the reign of the individual will. Now, post-Christian culture is still moral. Actually, it's kind of painfully moral. Like there's an unprecedented advocacy for human rights and equality, which are good, but how are we seeing that try to come about in culture? Cancel culture? Increased hostility between political parties? Online shaming? Right? The West inherited from Christianity incredibly high moral standards, but without the power of Christ's spirit. It's justice without grace and mercy. It's law without the fruit of the spirit. And that's one of the reasons why we see so much anxiety and outrage right now. Because our society wants to bring about this secular utopia without God. And it's not working at all. So what's all that mean for the church? That's kind of the big question today. Y'all still with me so far? Couple. Okay. Well, there are a few shifts happening as we enter into a post-Christian society. Number one is the church is shifting from the majority to the minority. Meaning our worldview, our value system, our practices, our, our social norms are more and more at odds with culture. We face pressure from the world, from, from both the left and the right, to assimilate to the herd. While 56% of millennials and still 70-something percent of the population as a whole identify as Christian, a recent survey by the Barna Group found that only 8% of the 56% of millennial Christians were what the Barna Group called resilient Christians. 
And resilient Christians were just like basic disciples of Jesus. Like they pray and read scripture on a regular basis. They're in a community with other followers of Jesus. Kind of basic, I'm a disciple of Jesus stuff. The rest of the 56% were Christian by label only. So 8% of 56%, that's like 4% of millennials that would consider, that be considered disciples of Jesus. That's a new phenomenon for the church in our country. We are on the fringe. Uh, second shift, from a place of honor to a place of shame. There was a time not long ago when followers of Jesus were at the center point of culture. Many, if not most government leaders, were at least cultural Christians. Uh, all the Ivy League was Christian. Most of those started as seminaries for pastors. Most of the leading intellectuals in science and philosophy and art and literature were believers. Pastors were often people of high standing. Not so much anymore. And the church held a place of honor in society. That time's gone. In particular, in issues around human sexuality and the life of the unborn. The church, Christians, now have the moral low ground in society's eyes. Jesus' sex ethic, in particular, is thought of as immoral by many in our society. Right? So we're no longer like the respectable Ned Flanders citizen Christian. We are now kind of the outsider punk rock group on the fringe. We're now on the fringe of society. We're getting there real quick. Because of that, there's a third shift that we're living through. And I feel this one strongly. That is a widespread tolerance to a rising hostility against Christianity. We're nowhere close to what other followers of Jesus are dealing with around the world. So I would not get anywhere close to calling it persecution. But there's a kind of cultural pressure that we live under and a stigma we carry. More and more people think of us now not just as weird, like, wait, you don't sleep together before you get married? But more and more people now think of us as dangerous. But this is nothing new for followers of Jesus. It may be new for us, but this is not new for those who have followed Jesus historically. The metaphor that the writers of Scripture use to name this kind of experience we're entering into is exile, which is the experience of knowing that you are living as an alien or perhaps even in, 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 even in a hostile environment where the dominant values run counter to one's own. So exile is experienced by anyone who feels alienated by their inability or unwillingness to conform to majority opinion. Paul Tabori defines exile as being an outcast within one's own country, meaning you can be an American citizen but still feel like you're on the outside. It's new to many of us as American Christians, but it goes back to before the time of Christ. If you, if you read the Old Testament, basically the entire second half of the Old Testament is God's, God warning Israel to repent of idolatry and immorality. And what you see is Israel is hard to God's voice and his love, and Israel is left to her own devices. And most of the time, that's God's judgment in the scriptures. It's not like, no, I'm going to kill you. It's just, okay, now you're on your own. You don't want me in your life? Let me respect your wishes. And now you do life without me. And without God's protection, Babylon came right in to conquer Jerusalem. The city is destroyed. The temple's torn down. Thousands of people are put to death. And what's left are dragged away into exile 700 miles to the east, where they will, as the New Testament puts it, live as strangers in a strange land. They are the minority. They are far from home. 
All around them is a strange new language, strange culture, a strange economic model, strange political system. They are exiles. But the prophet Jeremiah, who's still back in Jerusalem, writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon, and it becomes over the centuries kind of a template for how the people of God are to live and thrive in times of exile. So we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 29. Let's start at verse 1. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who had been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to skip to verse 4. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. So notice there's no hostility, anger, or fear but just love and care. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. So when it talks about these prophets and fortune tellers, this is referring to a group of prophets who are basically saying to the exiles, hey, don't get used to this. We're going back. We're going home any day. God's going to rescue us. Everything's going to go back to normal real soon, very soon. So just don't worry about it. They weren't pushing people to face reality. And God says, listen, they mean to comfort you, but don't listen to them. They're telling you lies. Verse 10, this is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years. That's a long time, isn't it? But then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. Then verse 11, the iconic verse, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. 70 years from now. We kind of like to quote that out of context, don't we? Like, let's not make it about 70 years in exile. When you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. Not a little bit, not as religious activity or tradition, but when you pray with a desperate heart. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. Verse 14, I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. Now, there's a lot we can learn from Jeremiah's letter about how to posture ourselves to flourish and thrive in a culture of exile. As a general rule, there are two extremes that we want to avoid in our posture towards exile. The first is tribalism. This is where we circle the wagons and we face inward and we huddle together and we retreat from society and culture. This is the kind of thing where we turn Christian into an adjective, right? Meaning you have a Christian dentist, a Christian doctor, Christian mechanic, you wear Christian clothes, right? This is kind of more of a a problem in previous generations. I can remember it. I wasn't quite cool enough for it though. A breadcrumb and fish instead of Abercrombie and fish fish t-shirts, right? That kind of thing has kind of faded away. But I think there's a new version of this where people just kind of keep their head down and fly under the radar. Don't really bring up the fact that they're Christian. Or they just kind of drop out of society and watch TV rather than engage with the world. The other direction we are tempted to go is toward assimilation. 
where we get sucked into the gravitational pull of culture. So if you read the Old Testament, you will see the long-running tradition of the people of God, not so much towards atheism, but more towards idolatry, right? The Babylonians, when they wanted to control a people, instead of enslaving them, they brought them to Babylon, they gave them an education, and they renamed them. So if you, read, if you ever have read the book of Daniel, Daniel was educated and Daniel was given a pagan name, Belshazzar, which means my God is Baal, which is one of the pagan gods of Babylon. You see what the goal is? You assimilate the people group intellectually, socially, culturally, and spiritually so that the community loses its ability to have its own distinctive understanding and interpretation of the world. And in exile, assimilation is an easy direction to go. Because when you're strangers in a strange land, it's easy to feel weak and vulnerable and fearful. It's easy to feel fear rather than faith. But fear is the love killer. Fearful people are not loving people. Behind most of the outrage and anger and polarization that you see online or wherever, behind almost all of that is fear. As John put it, perfect love casts out fear. There's no fear in love. We can also feel despair rather than hope because there's uncertainty in exile. Like, I've been kind of asking myself how much longer it will be legal for me to preach the way of Jesus. Like, how much longer? Maybe centuries, I don't know, maybe a few more months. I have no idea, but it's easy to feel despair. It's easy to feel self-pity rather than love. Robert Davidson calls self-pity the harlot emotion. Ooh. I read that recently and thought, I've been having a year-long affair with self-pity, and I should stop and repent. Seriously, I've had like, I felt more sorry for myself over the last year than I ever have. And it's easy for me just to feel self-pity and play the victim, but self-pity and victim mentality will often move us away from faith, hope, and love, and toward either tribalism or assimilation to escape the emotions of exile. So let's take a look at the third way, other than tribalism or assimilation, that the book of Jeremiah lays out. There are seven commands in the letter, and they're, they're great. Number one, build homes and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Meaning, this may not be where you want to be. This is where you are. Make it home. Develop the, the best environment for living that you possibly can. Settle in for the long run. Get to know the culture, eat its food, enjoy its wine, plan for the long haul. Find joy in the place you find yourself in. Number two, marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that they may, you may have many grandchildren. Meaning live in a rich web of relational life and multi-generational family. Become kind of an alternative society, what Paul in Philippians calls a colony of heaven. Three, Multiply, do not dwindle away. This means dream, reach out, help and serve people, invite your friends and family to church, practice hospitality. As Peter put it, live, in, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they glorify God. Number four, work for the peace and prosperity of the city. Take your work seriously. When you show up tomorrow morning for your job, work hard as an act of worship and love. Do all you can to make our area more like the Garden of Eden. Live out the ways of the kingdom of God. 
Be a good citizen. Pay your taxes. Support the local economy. Share with the poor. Volunteer. Vote. Pick up trash on the sidewalk. Number five, pray to the Lord for it. That's your city he's talking about. Pray to the Lord for it. For its welfare will determine your welfare. Pray for your city. Notice here, there's no hostility. There's no rant on Facebook against your city. Pray for your city. Bring the kingdom of God into your city in a greater way. Pray for your city to prosper under God. Number six, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. The one negative command in the whole bunch is to watch out for false teachers. And there are more now than there have ever been. Those who would lead you astray with one podcast at a time. With lies. By saying in the language of Paul in the New Testament what your itching ears want to hear. If you're new to Jesus, if you have not read First and Second Timothy, First and Second Peter, if you've not read Jude, if you've not read Hebrews, if you've not read the New Testament, read it. And read it again. Read it ten more times. And let the way of Jesus be imprinted onto your heart. False teachers lead us astray by appealing to our flesh and not our deepest desires, which are to live with God in his, in his kingdom forever. Finally, last command is to seek God wholeheartedly. God's in your city, Jeremiah is saying. At this time, nobody thought of God as being in a pagan land. Okay, God's supposed to be back in Israel and Jerusalem in the temple that's been destroyed. Jeremiah is saying God's right in the middle of exile. God's here and he's alive and he's at work for good. So, move toward him. Seek God. Move toward him with all your heart, with all your internal energy. Pray fast. Humble yourselves. Repent. Worship God. Wait and hope. This is a third way between tribalism and assimilation. It's a counterculture. A culture that doesn't re retreat from society. We are fully in society, but we also don't assimilate to society's ideals and opinions. In the world but not of it. Tim Keller says that the early church, until the 4th century, until Constantine came along, made Christianity the official Roman religion, and kind of caused all sorts of problems. He says that the early church was marked by four things that set them apart from society. Number one, the church was multiracial and multiethnic with a very high value for diversity, equality, and inclusion. If you don't believe me, read Romans. Number two, the church was spread across socioeconomic lines as well. It was the only place pretty much in the ancient Mediterranean world where there was not only Jew and Gentile and Italian and barbarian and Syrian, master and slave, there was male and female all in the same gathering. It was literally unheard of. And there was a very high value in that community, that counterculture for caring for the poor. Those with extra were expected to give with those with less. To those with less. Three, it was active in its resistance. It was active in its resistance against infanticide and abortion. That was one of the main things that Christians were known for. Four, it was crystal clear in its vision of covenant marriage as the one relational container that was strong enough to hold the beauty and mystery of human sexuality. Marriage was defined as a covenant between until death do us part between a man and a woman. Now, as I talked about last week, that was just as radical in the first century as it is in the 21st century. Now, if you put those four things onto the map, if you plot those out onto the map of, of modern American politics, 
The first two sound kind of like liberal positions, right? They're dealing with race and class. The second two around abortion and human sexuality kind of sound like conservative positions, right? There's no political party or ideology that holds all four together that I'm aware of outside of the Church of Jesus. And all these are biblical, all these are orthodox. Now, followers of Jesus can't disagree on the best way to implement these, right? For example, Democratic Christians and Republican Christians can disagree on how to best care for the poor. Is it through government programs or wealth redistribution, through taxes or through you know, government deregulation? We debate and we discuss on how best to do it, but all disciples of Jesus agree it is our role and our responsibility to take care of the poor. If you take issue with that, you're not, maybe not a follower of Jesus, or you have yet to read his teachings. And the thing is, if you lean left to prioritize the first two and ignore the other two, or if you lean right to prioritize, prioritize the third and fourth and ignore the first two, we stop being a counterculture. You see this in the New Testament. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were kind of the left and the right of that day, and neither likes Jesus, right? Like, they're both mad at him. They hate each other, but they, they're, they're at times they kind of team up on Jesus because they hate him even more, right? So in a post-Christian Christian culture, that could be our experience. We could be hated. Now, make sure you're hated because you're actually following Jesus, not because you're mean on Facebook. Those aren't the same things. If you, study it, if you study human history, you can chart most civilizations on a bell curve, where they kind of rise, they hit their peak, and then they fall into decline. And the people that study that stuff argue that America's now kind of over the peak and in decline. Whether that's true or not, I'm not really smart enough to say. But if you study history, what you will see is that once in a while, that, that bell curve, that decline, is averted by the emergence of a small group of people on the margins of society who have a different perspective because they are on the outside looking in, but who care about the culture and who play a great role in its healing and in its renewal. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs calls this a creative minority. He says this, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is a demanding and risk-laden choice. This creative minority is what the Bible calls the remnant. The remnant is the label used all through the scriptures for the small group of people, a small group within a group, basically. Paul wrote about this to the Romans. It says, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. In 1 Corinthians 19, when Elijah is full of self-pity and full of fear and full of despair because of how pagan and corrupt the north of Israel is, what does God say to him? Quote, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. 7,000 there is a symbolic number. It's not an exact head count. It's meaning there's the right number of us. Elijah, you think you're alone? You think you're the last one? You have kind of the self-pity, kind of righteous victim thing? You're not alone. 
There's so many more of you than you think. You're not alone. And of course, and Jesus is the ultimate example of the remnant. By challenging the status quo, he was the catalyst for healing and renewal. And through his life and his teachings and his suffering and his death and his resurrection from the dead, he literally changed the course of human history. Not only for Israel, but for the world. And here we are today living in the blessing of one singular, singular miraculous life. The question before us today is, will you join Jesus in the remnant or will you compromise our convictions and just assimilate to the culture? You have to decide, do you even want to be part of the remnant? Do you want to be part of a counterculture? This renewal movement, this healing movement of Jesus in the world, do I want to join that? Today is a call just to stay faithful in exile. To have moral courage in the time of rising hostility. But not just to grind it out and grow bitter and angry. But to stay faithful to Jesus and find a way to flourish and thrive right where we are. Jeremiah 29. There's no hostility, there's no fear, there's no anger, there's no aggression. But just love and peace. Eugene Peterson in Run With the Horses writes this. He says, Jeremiah's letter is a rebuke and a challenge. Quit sitting around feeling sorry for yourselves. The aim of the person of faith is not to be as comfortable as possible, but to live as deeply and as thoroughly as possible. To deal with the reality of life, discover truth, create beauty, act out love. Don't just get along waiting for some miraculous intervention. Build houses, plant gardens, marry husbands, marry wives, have children, pray for the wholeness of Babylon, do everything you can to develop that wholeness. The only place you have to be human is where you are right now. The only opportunity you will ever have to live by faith is in the circumstances you are provided this very day. This house you live in, this family you find yourself in, this job you have been given, the weather conditions that prevail at this moment. We must learn to find the goodness of God in our actual life. Not tomorrow, but today. Not when X, Y, and Z happens, but like right here and right now. In reality, I think of that line from the from AA's Serenity Prayer, written by a Christian theologian. It says, "Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, and then this: taking as Jesus did the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it." In the in the years to come, will we get sucked into the outrage and the anger and the fear of our culture? Or will we live as a counterculture, the remnant, the people of God? And will we focus on all that's sad and bad and let fear and despair and self-pity clog up our hearts? Or will we focus our energies on all that is good and beautiful and true in this time? Amen. Bruce, if you want to come on forward. Let's have the ministry time, the ministry team come up here. And we are, uh, we have an opportunity before us. You know, we can be the light of the world, or we can be like the world. <laughs> and, uh, 
you know, I really want to, I really want Jesus to shine through me. I want him to shine through us. And uh, let's be that kind of people that are that counterculture, that uh, really the culture of heaven um, on earth. Amen? So why don't we all stand here? And, you know, this, this is, you know, more than just a church decision. Uh, it's like, you know, we can say from up front here, yes, let's do this. But it really boils down to our own hearts, you know. Are we giving our yes to God and, and are we becoming this, uh, becoming representatives of Jesus like, like he would live in the world? And so I just, just ask you to just even give your own heart anew and afresh to Jesus, to commit yourself to his purposes and to his ways. And um, let's, let's be uh, the people that God's designed us to be. And yes, we are strangers in a strange land. Uh, this world is not our home. But yet, for this time, it is. And so, let's live in such a way that we uh, pursue the welfare of the city, that we pursue the, the goodness of God, uh, and release that wherever we go. I mean, these are not, these are exciting times. These are, uh, you know, lots of opportunities, lots of adventures ahead. God has much in store for us, and uh, it's all going to be good, because he's good. Amen? So, Lord, we do just uh, ask you to search our hearts and know our hearts, Lord, to lead us in the everlasting way, Lord, that we might follow you into that in its fullness, Lord. We pray that you would root out of us anything that would be, uh, as David says, any hurtful way that would be in us, Lord God, and that you would lead us in your ways of love and your ways of triumph, Lord God, that we could present hope to people, Lord God, that we would be the ones who uh, are, are redemptive, Lord God, and bringing forth your life wherever we go, Lord. Lord, change us where we need to be changed, Lord, and, and give us your, your mind, Lord God, so that we might present you, that we might re-present you, Lord God, uh, and be like Jesus in the earth today, Lord, sharing your love and your life and seeing people transformed by your gift of life. It's your name we pray. Amen.